The Unisu podcast is brought to you by technology and advisory firm Spacewell, who many of you will know as MCS Solutions. Spacewell software enables lifecycle management of buildings by integrating the process of designing, constructing, and operating a facility. At its core, Spacewell is all about making buildings work for people. You can find out more at spacewell.com. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Building Our Future podcast with me, Bert Broadhead. Appropriately, perhaps, given our mini heatwave, we're moving outside to the world of landscape architecture today. As the investor and developer focus moves inexorably closer to the end user, it feels like the external environment is about to have its moment as a medium for driving building desirability and therefore values. Alexandra Steed has worked all over the world on projects both large and small, so I turn to her to check in as to where we stand. My guest today is Alexandra Steed. Alexandra is a chartered landscape architect in the UK and also worked for a number of years in Canada, where she was responsible for a series of innovative public realm projects for the city of Vancouver. In 2013, Alexandra founded Urban with a stated aim of creating better cities for people through a synthesis of art, landscape, and sustainability. Before starting her own practice, Alexandra led the ACOM Europe design team and was also practice director for the Martha Schwartz Partners London office. Aside from her work with Urban, Alexandra acts as a built environment expert for the Design Council and sits on the Highways England design panel. She lectures at architectural schools and conferences and as a reviewer at universities, included, including Harvard and the Bartlett UCL. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a delight to be here, Bert. So the stated aim on your website of, of your business, Urban, is creating better cities for people. What are the guiding tenets that, that lead you to achieving this same? Okay, well, I'd say that, um, well, the ultimate vision is to create places of joy for people's everyday lives within the city. So I think, you know, so often it's quite difficult within such a gritty urban environment to find those moments of kind of peace and tranquility and beauty. Um, and so we really are quite keen on bringing all those things into city life. And, um, you know, as more and more people are living in cities, I think it's about it's close to 60 percent, I think now, of the world's population is living in cities. So our landscapes have to work uh, extremely hard to, to facilitate all those people. And when you talk about landscape, what is it that we, that we mean? Are we purely talking about greenery? Partly. I mean, I mean anything to do with the external environment. So I think while plants and greenery brings a huge amount of pleasure to most people's lives, you know, I think there is an overwhelming sense of calm and um, tranquility when when green is around. So that is a very important player in our experience of landscapes. But there's also so many other components. So um, public realm includes everything to do with all of our streetscapes, all of our plazas, open spaces, you know, really anything in the external environment. And in your accomplishments to date, in terms of trying to deliver this goal of creating better cities for people, what are you most proud of uh, thus far? I guess, I guess what I've said so far is that it's kind of this combination of connecting people and nature, so bringing landscapes into the city environment. And uh, 
I think one of my proudest moments was actually right at the start of my career. So I was fresh out of university um, where I, uh, I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And uh, then I went to work for the city of Vancouver Greenways Department, where we were introducing a series of pedestrian and cycling routes throughout the city. And so I took on one project there um, that was to regenerate quite a, a length of streetscape that ended in a stream. And it ran beside a residential community and a park. And uh, so here, I was really passionate about creating uh, a sustainable streetscape, something that isn't done very often, especially this was back sort of 2000. And uh, so I wanted to do something new and use all the wonderful things I'd learned at university about creating sustainable communities in practice. And uh, so we designed the street um, to be in, uh, you know, very environmentally sensitive and also to prioritize pedestrians. But a key um, principle and objective in the design was to bring salmon back into the stream at the, at the base of the street. And through our redesign and through um, using water in a different way. So, so rather than having water go straight into a storm sewer system um, and then recharging in, in you know, real gushes into the stream, we did it so that the groundwater was recharged very sort of slowly, gradually, in, and uh, filtering pollutants before entering the stream environment. And we found within, I think it was within a year, salmons were coming back into the stream. And so that was like, wow, you know? Yeah, it was really wonderful. And now it's used as a pioneer and demonstration project for the university and the city of Vancouver. So this is, you know, 20 years later now, and it's still being used as an example of innovation in street design. So that sounds like a huge aesthetic improvement. Yeah. Has there been any way of being able to measure the, the improvement on the, on the community and the people using this built environment? Yeah, well, I think actually one of the ways that the community really benefited most from was the public engagement at the start. And so the community was really involved. We had all sorts of workshops with them about what they wanted the street to be. And, uh, and so there was actually quite a lot of coming together just through that engagement process. So neighbors that had never spoken, neighbors that had some conflict and that sort of thing actually came together around this project. And everybody was quite excited about it, as long as they still had a place to park their car. That was always the key. So as long as we provided a place, um, you know, we did it in a very sensitive way, so it was permeable. Um, but they were happy as long as there was somewhere for that to be, and that they felt it was still safe um, and beautiful. So they were really pleased in how much the aesthetics, actually, of the street had improved so, you know, it has benefits on many levels when you do design with nature in mind. And is the answer to better cities and better communities generally the same from place to place? No. Well, I would say, I would say definitely there's some principles that you should always follow. So a methodology, I'd say, or a process is more important than the outcome. Right. So, um, you know, in our work, I would say that we have a signature process, which is quite engaged. It's very collaborative. We like to involve the public and um, we have quite a research-led approach. So, you know, we like to be very well informed when we start a pro uh, project, um, but we certainly don't have any outcome in mind. So I think that's very important, actually, is that you don't have any preconceived notions of what a place should be 
before you start working with the community, before you start understanding the climate and the, the particular constraints of a certain place. That will all lead to the most meaningful result. So it sounds as if nothing's taken for granted, even, even a concept as in uh, greener places making for happier people. It sounds like it's much more multifaceted than that. Yes, definitely multifaceted. I mean, for example, we were just looking at the design of a public square. So in this particular instance, um, although we are trying to incorporate green because it is better for the environment, you know, there's certain, there's certain targets we have to meet now uh, if you want to get BREAM uh, rating and that sort of thing. Um, but in this particular location, it was more important to provide a flexible open space that could be used for events and that could be used for spillout cafe space, that sort of thing. So um, having a huge amount of green in that particular instance isn't necessarily the right thing to do, although we do try to accommodate it where we can. So your work seems to be right at the confluence of a whole range of emerging trends from environmental awareness to well-being to Instagrammability and sustainability. Mm-hmm. It feels like landscape architecture ought to be in huge demand right now. Is that is that a trend that you're noticing? Yeah, I'm, I sort of feel that. <laughs> so... Um, so a lot, of, a lot of the text you read says that places need to be um, people-first oriented or that they need to be landscape-led or um, that they need to achieve um, innovation in every aspect, these sorts of things. So often projects start out with very aspirational objectives, but I think it's very hard to maintain that. So um, what I normally find is that though a client may actually want that when other things come into play, you know, economics, of course, is always, is always number one, really, in terms of most of our clients' minds. So how profitable will this place be? How much value can we bring, et cetera, et cetera? Um, those things then can start to override those initial visions of creating a very uh, visionary place. So I'd say it's, it's creeping in, but it is... To be honest, it is taking longer than I thought it would take. So when I was studying in the 90s, um, you know, all of these ideas were out there, but they were, um, and, and everything I was taught was about people-led communities, sustainable communities, introducing green infrastructure and blue infrastructure. And this is, you know, almost 30 years ago now. <laughs> so don't try and figure out my age. <laughs> and... Uh, and, but yeah, so I'm finding, you know, like that project I mentioned in Vancouver, that is still a cutting edge project that was done 20 years ago. So there's, there's a lot of things that take a huge amount of time to actually become inscribed in people's sort of visions and approach to the way we design communities. And I think we often just fall back. Then when things get challenging, we fall back on what we know and what we feel safe with. Do you think that's due to a lack of understanding or perhaps misunderstanding with regards to the value that good public realm and landscape can add to buildings and areas? Yes, I do. I think that I think that while people appreciate landscape, I think most people still don't see it as an essential item. So I remember even uh, when I was working at the city of Vancouver, the, the engineers were called essential employees, and we were non-essential. <laughs> so we'd always get a kick out of that. There was a bit of... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's still that way. Engineering is considered essential, and, and the landscape component, say of a streetscape, 
might be considered as an add-on. Although I think, again, that is definitely changing. There's the whole Healthy Streets initiative. Um, there's many initiatives now in terms of health of streets and communities. So, so that is changing. Um, but really, the, the past number of decades have very much been a sort of engineering-led approach to public realm, I would say, in most instances. You know, streetscape is about 25% of our urban environment. And yet, um, you know, I would say we often squander that, that opportunity to make it a really essential part of the public realm. So I think I've got two questions on that, and one of which I'll come back to, which is to do with the, the ownership of the public realm. Uh, and who should ultimately control it. But but firstly, what about the, the end user? So there, there's a real trend across all sectors in real estate now to really focus on the end user above and beyond the kind of intermediate tenants. And it just seems that so many of the trends we've we've mentioned, be it uh, environmental awareness, well-being, et cetera, are all things which are so relevant to the end user. Didn't, do you see them becoming more important in the in the, the design of, of what you're doing and what clients are driving you to, to achieve? I, and, and I do think there is. I do think there is. Um, and like I said, well, I, I'm very privileged to have a number of clients that do really believe in public realm and landscape, and that's why they hire us, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we have some wonderful clients that really value and understand the benefit that landscape brings and, and, um, and really want to celebrate that and promote it. There's so many people that don't even know what landscape architects are. Most people I meet don't understand what a landscape architect is. And so there's this kind of a whole, um, I think there's just a gap there, you know, in terms of, um, well, I suppose it, it's quite historical because you look back, it, it was about garden design originally. And so when people think about landscape, they still kind of think of, of garden design. And, and only certain landscape architects concentrate on that type of project. Right. Whereas, um, you know, we get involved in all sorts of things. We, we have to understand structural loading, climates, how, how people move, how cyclists, vehicles, how all these things converge. You know, so it's a multifaceted thing. And I think most people, when they think of landscape architects, purely think of planting. Right. Yeah. Um, which, of course, is an important part of what we do, but it's only one small component. So um, I think... M well, you know, it's probably something to do with our profession that we haven't been terribly good at expressing and communicating to the public what we do and why we're important to cities. So we really need to work on that. Uh, and, you know, getting out there and talking to people about the value that we can bring. So a number of years ago, I put together a presentation that started focusing on the economic value of landscape, because I think that was something that was really not understood. And I didn't even understand it because there isn't a huge amount of literature about that. And it's not easily quantified. So just picking up on that, do you have a favorite example which you use for, for clients uh, as, as something in the past where you can point to and just say that this was uh, landscape design done well uh, and it clearly derived X uh, positive value as a result? Yeah, well... Can I give you a very historical reference yeah, that everybody will know? <laughs> uh, Central Park in New York. So everybody around the world knows Central Park. And uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the designer, the landscape architect of that, he was actually, um, he, he was very business-minded. And so he knew what he was going to do would bring great value 
to the land and property value of Manhattan. Uh, so actually, he looked at the value of the properties adjacent, so the, so the adjacent neighborhoods before construction of the park and after, and compared those, and they had increased tenfold. So these were not just the adjacent properties, but the adjacent neighborhoods, while in the same time period, the other neighborhoods that weren't adjacent to Central Park only increased twofold. So his <laughs> the so Central Park had that incredible impact of increasing property values by ten times, um, and you know Central Park still has an incredible value. I think it's I was, I was looking at the numbers again recently. It's something like six hundred and thirty million dollars per acre, um, and and but what's even more interesting about this is that if you were to remove Central Park from Manhattan the entire value of Manhattan would dramatically drop. So because none of the land would be as valuable right. without the park there. So, you know, it really has that kind of effect. And um, I've been looking at also a lot of the RICS data that's collected throughout England and Scotland. And um, there it, it finds that property value often increases by about 20% if it's located close to... Uh, a quality city park. And quality is key here. It, this is not something to be ignored because if you have a quality uh, public realm, it greatly increases the value. Whereas if you have poor quality public realm, if you have an unmaintained park close to you or where there's vandalism, that sort of thing going on, it actually dramatically decreases the value of your property. So we need to be very mindful of this, that if you don't invest in landscape and public realm, it actually will lower the value of your whole development. So you, you need to keep that in mind that you can benefit if you yeah. do, but you can actually um, really, really fail if you don't, if you ignore it. So just picking up on a, on a, a previous question I was going to ask, what is your view as to who is best uh, responsible for, for public realm, given that many of our towns and cities are owned in, in disparate ownership structures, is this something which should sit with public sector bodies or can it be delegated down through through private ownership? Well, gosh, it's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think that the government really does need to be responsible for this to keep it public. I do worry greatly about the privatization of public spaces, um, though I think that there are measures in place for developers to contribute to public spaces and that um, works very well. Uh, but I do think that, that um, the public sector does need to still be responsible for public spaces so that they do um, stay in the public realm. Uh, well, I can't, argue, I can't argue with that as a philosophical conclusion, um, albeit I do think there is, there is certainly scope for um, private sector involvement. And in your experience, have you seen good examples of uh, public-private partnerships or, or that level of working together to deliver and maintain interesting uh, public realm and landscape? Um, for, for the philosophical approach, I think, is yeah. kind of the key to me, is that we actually do have places that are truly public, yeah. um, that, that everybody is welcome in, and that, you know, no matter who you are, where you're from, you're free to, to be in a particular place without um, 
you know, being, being forced out. So I think that that is really key to me is that, that we do maintain those public, truly public spaces. So um, what we normally try to promote with our clients, especially within residential developments or say a greenway, we're working on a greenways project in Barking right now, Barking and Dagenham. And there the idea is that while, um, while the crews, like the, the council crews will be responsible for sort of basic maintenance, because it is an awful lot, you know, there's an awful lot of lawn cutting and that sort of thing right. that needs to happen that you couldn't rely on yeah. residents to do. Um, we are setting aside locations along that greenway where the community can and want to become involved. So, for example, with some allotment gardens, um, there's going to be an orchard, um, bulb planting, that sort of thing. And the community is really excited about getting involved in that and then helping to maintain that over time. So I've worked on a number of projects where that's been very successful, where that collaboration between city or borough and community has been very effective. But I don't think you should rely entirely on the community because, of course, people move, um, you know, for whatever reason, can't always stay involved as long as they might even want to. Um, so there always has to be that backing of the council to, to buffer that. It's interesting that you mentioned Barking, which is obviously the hub for a lot of urban regeneration at the moment. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think that innovative public realm and landscaping can be a facilitator for regeneration? I think it's a, it can be a wonderful catalyst for regeneration. I worked on a, a, a project that we did at ACOM. It was called Belfast Streets Ahead. And there, um, it, it was, we were working with the regeneration department. I forget what it was called now. Anyways, uh, for Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. And, um, and so they decided that the way to regenerate all of the historic core of Belfast city centre, which was really in quite a state, and not a desirable place to be at all. Um, they decided that they were going to put a lot of funding into regenerating the public realm first as a way of attracting new tenants into the area and attracting visitors, tourism, that sort of thing. So they did that and it was, it, um, was amazing. So we put in really high quality public realm, um, worked with the community to come up with something that they loved, worked with the city to make sure it was the type of public realm they were happy to maintain, et cetera, you know, and, um, so in the end, it did create a wonderful environment. And in the first three years, I don't know beyond that, but in the first three years after stage one was built, um, there was about 150% increase in um, visitors to the area and almost a double uh, increase, so 200% increase in the spend, the visitor spend in the area. So just, you know, and that was only within a couple of years. So it does take time for... Uh, the word to get out that a place has changed and has transformed and that you should go there. So we are really thrilled with that result. And I can imagine it's only just kept improving over the last few years. And do you think the real catalyst for that regeneration then is is simply the commitment of investment into the area and the demonstration that people are, are setting out to change the area? Mm. Or is it more um, a product of the, the aesthetic improvement? Well, I guess, it, I guess it's both. I, I suppose it's both. When people start reading about it, when there's press about it, you know, that the government is investing in this, they think it's important, then, a, then suddenly it does draw a lot of attention to a certain area. 
Um, but certainly they have to see the result of that. They have to see the, how the investment has actually improved their lives and improved um, a place. So, so how it's delivered and implemented is essential um, to actually carrying that through then and for people to, to understand that investment and to be um, confident that their money has been well spent. So moving on to a subject which is uh, close to the heart of a podcast, which is the the issues with the British high street. Um, to what extent do you think uh, landscape and, and public realm can again help improve what's happening in our in our town centres? Um, and also, to what extent is the disparate ownership that often um, goes hand in hand with these towns a barrier to um, I suppose, kind of reinventing the, the existing landscapes within those towns? Um, well, I would say that in terms of disparate ownership, I haven't experienced that being the major problem. I think people are often willing to rally and come together when they know that they will all be yeah. benefit. Um, my greatest um, challenge I find with dealing with streetscape here in the UK is that there are so many different agencies involved in what's happening in that street. So there's so many utilities all owned by different companies, you know, so you've got water, <laughs> you've got fiber optic, you know, you've got so many different things happening and none of it's coordinated. So there's no one particular owner that's taking care of all that. So for example, you know, we'll, we'll have a new street installed and a month later, part of it might be torn up and, and then, you know, say beautiful pavers are replaced with a bit of asphalt. So that sort of thing, I think, is really hard to overcome here. And really, that needs to come top down from the government. Uh, so you're speaking to a load of agencies, but frankly, that's just kind of how it is over here. So uh, what's your experience of, uh, of this in, in other jurisdictions? <laughs> so in Vancouver, it's quite different. I, like I said, I was working within the city of Vancouver. So I was working in the streets department and everything to do with streets is coordinated within the streets department. So when we would go out to um, rebuild a street as a greenway, we would make sure that wastewater were involved, that water were involved, that all the electricals had been done. You know, everything had to be coordinated. So if, if um, say, for example, water knew that a pipe needed replacing within the next three years, and normally this is programmed out, right. um, then then we'd say, okay, well, you need to do that before we build this greenway then so that you're not interfering. So everything would be programmed and yeah. we would know that, okay, well, we can build this greenway in two years because it's going to take this long for all those utilities to be updated that need to be put in place, you know, or whatever it is, um, before that time. And so that you're not then <laughs> designing something that you know is just going to immediately be torn up. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I think ties me in quite nicely to my, to my next question, um, which relates to technology. So to what extent can technology be part of a solution of, of bringing together those, those various agencies? Uh, and also second part of a question, which is, can technology help uh, as a means of engaging the public as to what the, the public realm ought to look like? Mm. Well, I mean, certainly the technology exists now to hold all of that information together in one place. Um, so with GIS and that sort of thing, it's quite easy to locate all of those things and to map it out. I'd say it's more of 
a willingness to do so and to actually want to coordinate. I suppose at the moment there's not a huge amount of incentive to those for those various agencies to do so. Um, and until that happens, until there is some sort of overall governing structure that really takes a look at this and sees how it can improve, I, I don't really see why that would happen. And on the community engagement piece, can technology be a, be a tool in bettering our engagement with, with the, the local community? Oh, definitely. Um, so, for example, I was working on the Mount Pleasant scheme. I don't know if you are familiar with that. So, you know, the Royal Mail site. Yeah. So there was a master plan done for that, um, that, that straddles between Islington and Camden. And so it was quite complicated in terms of planning approvals and that sort of thing. But anyways, Boris Johnson had called that one in um, and approved it. And then the community, you know, got into an uproar about this because nobody, uh, well, nobody that I spoke to anyways, but so, so I'd say the majority of the community surrounding that area was not behind uh, what had been put forward and approved by Boris Johnson. So, so they called for an alternative, uh, alternative scheme to be produced. And I got involved in that because I happen to live in that neighborhood. So, um, so we pulled together an alternative scheme and, uh, and the community was very much behind it. And what I, I, I guess what I want to say here is that the way that we kept people engaged was not only through sort of the typical consultation workshops and that sort of thing, but by having a website with constant updates, with um, social media that people could check in on. And, you know, there's so many people are using social media right now that it's a very good way to keep people up to date and to let them know what's going on. So, um, yeah, even little things like that, you know, things that people are already using and like to use, if you can tap into that, it's, it's very helpful. Uh, so you've worked on projects all over the globe, um, but looking at your website, there's, there's clearly been a focus on um, the Middle East of late. What kind of additional considerations do you have to bear in mind vis-a-vis uh, -vis the climate conditions over there? Yeah, well, I would say that our main challenge is dealing with water, actually. Water's a huge issue to deal with. So we're working on a project in Saudi Arabia currently where um, the aquifer that has been serving this particular county that we're working within has dramatically reduced in the last... 20 years, you know, so it was, it was quite plentiful for centuries, you know, and beyond. Right. And then suddenly like that, because uh, in about the 1980s, there was a massive push with agriculture and modern agricultural methods that aren't appropriate really in the Middle East because of the, the supply of water that was um, demanding. Um, so for example, they're growing a lot of alfalfa they really shouldn't be grown there, and that's as a feed crop for the camels. <laughs> so anyways, the aquifer is dramatically um, decreased. But then there's also problems uh, in other places like Qatar, where I've worked. We were finding that because of the desalination that was happening, um, there was actually then too much. There was an oversalination of groundwater then because that salt has to go somewhere. So then it started polluting the groundwater. So, you know, then the, then the <laughs> challenge increases. So anyways, 
I'd say that water is the most sensitive issue, and we have to be so careful that um, we're helping for the aquifer or the groundwater to be recharged and replenished, and that we're not drawing more, you know, uh, more quickly than it is being recharged. So, or they're going to end up with a huge problem very, very soon. And this, you know, this is imminent. This isn't something that's way out in the future. This is, this is quite uh, an emergency sort of situation, I would say. So it sounds like your brief over there is is more focused on maintaining landscape whilst not depleting uh, natural resources. Yeah, yeah. So that is a big deal. I think a lot of it is in changing people's concept of what beautiful landscape might be. So um, I think a lot of Middle Eastern clients in the past have wanted to create very lush yes. and you know oasis gardens within deserts. Um, that are more, I would say, Western-type designs. So they want lush lawns and, uh, you know, a lot of bountiful planting and big trees and that sort of thing, which, which isn't natural for that landscape. So what we're trying to promote is the beauty of the natural landscape that can be very comfortably uh, maintained by the water level there. And it is beautiful, but, you know, it's just a different type of beauty. So I think a lot of our job is to show the attractiveness of that and to show that actually people will be drawn to this type of landscape because it's so different from what we have. You know, we don't necessarily want to go to the Middle East to see what we have here. We want to go there for a different experience. So I think um, a lot of it just comes through with talking about things, education about um, how, how you can create more naturalized landscapes that still achieve those goals. So this question runs entirely counter to that last point, but have they looked at hydroponics as a potential solution to this? Yeah, they have. So hydroponics is spoken about quite a lot. Um, just last year in Saudi Arabia, they started a um, organic farming action plan. So there's a huge amount of money now being invested in more um, sustainable methods of agriculture that I think will phase out those other sort of uh, unsustainable methods in, in the near future. So yeah, hydroponics is uh, a big topic. So is permaculture. So that is really huge. And I would say, although... Uh, it's not covering vast areas. There's a huge interest in it, and it's um, but it's it's growing much more organically, you know. So small scale, but there's some really interesting people out there. There's a, a fellow named Jeff Lawton that's working a huge amount in the Middle East with communities to teach them how to do it, um, so that this so that this community of people and this this knowledge base then grows locally and and has that sustaining effect. So clearly the, the local environment does shape your work, but what, what creates the greater challenge for you? Is it the, the, the unique climates of each location uh, or do political jurisdictions pose more of an issue? Yeah, um, it's a good question, actually, because I would say, like, for example, the, the landscape we're working in currently, it's a very large area. It's about the size of Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but the aquifer is so enormous that it spans much beyond our uh, boundary. You know, of course, landscape doesn't appreciate any of these political boundaries. So, um, so what we're doing within that county, you know, all the recommendations we make, even things that are put into planning policy, will only have an impact within our political boundary. 
And yet the aquifer problem is something much bigger than that. So, um, you know, it, these things really have to be looked at at a national level and beyond. I mean, much, much more than national level. We, we need to be looking at this more globally, but um, certainly beyond, beyond a county level. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say it's a combination. Both, both climate and, and political issues are sort of equally challenging. So moving slightly away onto um, my current smart cities fascination. Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement on the Highways England panel? Yeah, well, um, so they've invited me to be part of that panel to just really um, have a perspective that is not focused on vehicles, that is focused more on environment and um, maintaining a respect for the environment that highways are moving through. So, for example, uh, I was the last one I was looking at a new highway was being proposed um, because there was some traffic problems and, and there was a lot of traffic jams being caused in this particular stretch of highway that was going through a town centre. So the proposed realignment had it going through a conservation area, an ancient woodland, <laughs> a national park. You know, incredible, incredible what they were willing to do, all to save two minutes in travel time for vehicles. So, um, you know, the amount of damage it was going to do environmentally was enormous. And, uh, and yet, so I guess this is, this is what's still so obvious, is that vehicles are still considered first, yes. because that was the only way uh, it was going to benefit anyone, was the vehicle. It was the only benefit being made. And um, so it... Anyways, it's just important, I guess, that there is a range of people on these highways panels, and I'm so glad they've got a full range of different uh, disciplines involved. So they've got ecologists, architects, urban designers, landscape architects, engineers, um, ecologists, all sorts of things that can look at things um, from a very broad perspective to start to, to deal with these issues of highways in a new way. So I've just finished reading a book uh, called Smart Enough Cities by a guy called Ben Green. And in it, he really challenges the current orthodoxy of the thinking about shaping cities um, for autonomous vehicles and, and how the assumption is that, that a, a smart city or a good city is one which easily accommodates autonomous vehicles mm. um, and posing the idea that actually perhaps the real question to ask is, are autonomous vehicles really the right solution for um, you know, better cities for humans? And I'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong. Um, I'm just saying that if you don't want the vehicle to be king, you do need alternative options to be working uh, to an extent that they provide a, a better option. Yeah, but it is really changing, isn't it? I mean, when you just look at what's happening in London in terms of all the cycling routes that are being implemented, all the greenways, things are changing, definitely. But um, yeah, but for the most part, the vehicle yeah. still is, is the king. So my final question relates to your... Um, inclusion of art within uh, within landscape architecture. Um, art's uh, a, a topic we've touched on in several podcasts. Um, how are you thinking about it? Is this is this kind of large pieces of public art, or, or do you see art as being very much intertwined in in your wider work? Um, well, I started as an artist before studying landscape architecture. So when I was when I was studying art, what I wanted to do was take it into the landscape. So that was kind of the starting point was, was, okay, well, how can I 
take these artworks that I'm doing and actually make them public so that people can enjoy them. They're not just stuck in a gallery, but they can be interactive and uh, more spatial and, uh, and enjoyed by many people. So that's kind of where I started. And then um, over time, that's changed, of course, as I've experienced many new things and, and matured in my profession. Um, but it's always the basis of everything I do, because I guess how I understand art is that it provides a way of seeing things more clearly or in fresh and innovative ways. Uh, it can heighten your awareness of things. It can express ideas in a new way. And it can make new connections. So I guess that's how... Um, so rather than saying, oh, I, I make sculptural landform or something like that, it's not... That's not what I mean. It's more an artistic approach about how do we make connections? How do we engage people more with their environment? And how do we help them to see things fresh, you know, and in a, in a more intriguing and um, exciting way? So we're on to our final three questions. Um, the first of which is, please may you recommend our listeners one book that has influenced your thinking and what you do? Okay, well, this is where you'll probably think I'm a quack. <laughs> Um, maybe I am, but, uh, there's, there's a book I've, I've read a number of times called A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, and it's actually nothing to do with design of cities, but it's, uh, it's more about, um, increasing consciousness. Yep. And so for me, I guess that, that has such a strong connection to what I was just talking about in terms of art and, and sort of understanding our place in the world. So I think, for me, that's really why I'm so passionate about what I do is because I really do believe that there's so much joy and meaning to be found when people can connect with nature and understand that they're part of something bigger. Yeah. You know, it's not just us against <laughs> the world, but we're part of the world. And I suppose that's kind of my um, whole approach to designing in the city, too, is that rather than resisting nature, we're welcoming it in. And, and working with it. So, and anyways, in this book, A New Earth, um, at the beginning of the book, there's a very beautiful example of about how we do kind of step into a different type of consciousness. And, and he suggests looking at a flower and just sort of understanding your connection to the world through just, you know, gazing into a flower and seeing the beauty in that and uh, the, um, the transience and the, the life-giving properties in that. But anyways, you know, it's something that I do naturally, and I guess I, I feel it's very enriching, and I would love for other people to have that experience of connecting to nature and, and experiencing that richness. I shall add it to the Building Our Future reading list. Eckhart Tolle's other book, The Power of Now, certainly seems to be having a resurgence at the moment, so uh, now I'll look forward to reading that one. Our second question is much more simple. What is your favorite building? One building that I really do love is, oh gosh, I don't even, I, I think it's called Key Branly by Jean Nouvel and Patrick Blanc in Paris. Um, so Patrick Blanc designed, you know, hand, hand in hand with Jean Nouvel this building. And I think that's why I love it so much is that you can see there was complete collaboration between the two. So there's this amazing green wall on one side of the building. And then um, there's a really beautiful sort of seamless transition between the landscape and the building. So you enter sort of underneath the building and the landscape draws you in to a courtyard. Um, so anyways, it's just 
I love to see that kind of integration between building and landscape and how the two can work so seamlessly. It is possible, you know, they don't have to be separate. Um, and that brings us on to our final question, which is what is your technology business or, or idea that is your tip to impact the built environment in the coming years? Oh, well, I mean, I think your mention of driverless cars yeah. is going to have probably a really huge impact on what we do. I'm not necessarily saying I want them or, you know, I don't I'm not taking any stance about them there. But I think that there is potential for that to have a huge impact on the way cities are designed and the way people move. Um, you know, other things may come along that push that out of the, the scene. But um, at the moment, it seems like one of those things that could really change. Alexandra, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure hearing about the built environment from the exterior looking, looking in. Um, it's been great hearing your thoughts. And yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It may come as no surprise that landscape architecture is yet another discipline that is firmly putting the end user first. As I mentioned previously, there's so much in today's Zeitgeist themes that resonate with public realm and landscape. Environmentalism, sustainability, Instagram, health and well-being. When we think about real estate, I think the natural assumption for most of us is to think about buildings. But it may be that it's the space between those buildings that is about to be given the due care that it so clearly needs if we're really to create better cities and places for us humans. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do me a favor and simply tell a friend about it. You're always welcome to rate me on Apple Podcasts, but a simple referral is just as appreciated. Thank you for listening, and please do join me for another episode in two Fridays' time. Mm-hmm.